So I've lived in Sacramento on and off since 1982. I love the city, it's just beautiful. Recently, it just was degrading, degrading, degrading. School kids couldn't even walk to school without being threatened, yelled at, cursed at. I mean, you've walked down the streets and you just hear somebody go random off with a string of profanity. The city is spending somewhere around $40 million a year on homeless issues. Where's the money going? What are they doing? And then I noticed that the state capitol was being remodeled, a huge renovation, a billion dollar renovation. It was all done in secret. Even the press in Sacramento says it's been the most under the radar thing that they've ever seen. My guest today is historian and filmmaker, Bill George, who has been studying and documenting the history and culture of California. Today, he'll discuss the changes he has observed in the California state capitol when it comes to homelessness, crime, and transparency in the legislative body. We'll also take a deep dive into California's history and look at its culture and how it was shaped. You hear about all these folks that are leaving California, and you can understand why when you see these things going on. Many, many negative things, you hardly ever hear the positive things. But here's what happens in history. The vision of the pioneers of California, the early settlers of California, just people getting together going, hey, let's make this better, let's do this, let's figure a way to get this done. We're gonna stay and fight it because this is a great state. No state is as beautiful, no state is as magical, and we damn near can't lose it. I'm Siamai Karami, welcome to California Insider. Bill, it's great to have you on, welcome. Thank you so much, it's wonderful to be down here. And we wanna to talk to you about Sacramento. You're a journalist, you've been making documentaries for PBS, you've been observing something in your own community in Sacramento. Can you tell us what you see with the homelessness? We've been hearing from a lot of residents as well that homelessness is on the rise. So I've lived in Sacramento on and off since 1982. I moved there from the Midwest. I love the city. It has a very Midwestern feel to it. It's called the City of Trees. It is a huge canopy of trees. Kind of a relaxed environment, very nice. So I worked in a variety of jobs in Sacramento. I was a journalist at the local TV station. I also worked in public relations and marketing, and I worked for a governor of California, Governor Pete Wilson, for some trade associations. So I'm familiar with the downtown area, and I love it, loved it, you'd walk around. Recently, uh, I noticed that I, you know, I hadn't lived down there for 10, 15 years, or worked down there. But coming down to shows and things, it just was degrading, degrading, degrading. And then I noticed, or knew, that the state capitol was being remodeled, a huge renovation, a billion dollar renovation. Then COVID hit. So as I'm going around, I'm seeing these horrible scenes, many, many homeless people in the streets. There's, of course, in the news, there was shootings, there was the George Floyd protest and riot. And I just thought, this is getting out of control. So about six months ago, I decided, you know, I wanna make a personal film about what this city means to me what I love about it, why I love it, and also what I think about the changes that are going on. But I wanted the people to talk. I wanted to talk to local people and let them have a voice in terms of what's going on. We hear from the officials, we hear from the governor all of the time, but we don't hear from the business owners, from the local residents, from the people that really love the capital, that live in Sacramento their whole lives and have loved that building, which is an epic building. It's just beautiful. So those are the things I wanted to bring out in the documentary. 
And can you tell us about what you heard from the residents? What, what is going on in Sacramento? Sure. So everything's kind of tied together. The capital, which is a ba major source of employment, brings people in. Then the business district, which is contiguous to the capital, it's called K Street. And then the residents, many of whom live in beautiful homes uh, within a mile or two of the state capital. Well, what was going on there as this homeless problem kept getting exacerbated and bigger and bigger, um, entire homeless encampments would move in. So on this one block where I go in a place called Boulevard Park, and it's called that, used to be a boulevard for the State Fair Raceway, that's where they would actually race. So it's truly connected deeply to Sacramento. Well, here are these folks in beautiful million dollar plus homes, and right across the street from there is a whole homeless encampment. So I was introduced to them, went down one day and just interviewed a host of them. And again, I wanted them to talk almost uninterrupted, just a few questions from me, what's your experience like? And they told me, um, even though I knew things were bad, shock me. So they have not just home, and, and again, no one is anti-homeless. I mean, we keep hearing that, but it's true. People are not out to get, hate homeless people or things of that nature. They want to help them, but certainly they're not being helped by living on the streets. I heard a good quote once, and it was, you know, I'm not concerned about the homeless being stigmatized. I'm concerned about them not getting food, not getting water, and getting killed in the weather. That's what people are concerned about. But you had all these folks living on the street right across from it. There was drug use going on. There were thousands of needles being found. School kids couldn't even walk to school without being threatened, yelled at, cursed at. I mean, you've walked down the streets and you just hear somebody go random off with a string of profanity. So th and then there was crime and people breaking into homes. A woman was murdered in Land Park, which is one of Sacramento's quintessential neighborhoods, very nice neighborhood. She was murdered by this guy that had been let out of prison. And people are just getting fed up with it. So that's a story I wanted to tell through their own words about what they're experiencing. You know, we hear from experts all the time. We hear from politicians all the time. But who hears from the people that are actually living and putting up with this day-to-day -day in their lives? What's it mean to them? And they're frightened, they're scared, and they're sick of it. And some people, I had a chance to take a look at your documentary, and some people didn't want to come on camera. Why, why is that? Isn't that sad? Yes, a couple people didn't want to appear because they're afraid that their image would be out there and people, the homeless people might come after them. But also, there are advocates for the homeless who are so in your face that they will target you and you know, dox you or shame you or protest in front of your house. So that's the reasons that they didn't want to go on camera. And there's one woman, very, very frightened. And you can tell the emotion in her voice. You know, again, she doesn't want to hurt anybody. She's not anti-homeless, but she wants to live in safety. You have children walking to school. Are they safe? And you know, I, hate, I hope it doesn't happen, but I could see where there'd be a violent incident down there. And then there is violence against innocent people or children. Then there is going to be a backlash that nobody wants to put up with. And what would be that backlash? It could be a violent backlash. I mean, people would take the law in under their own, uh, into their own hands, vigilante justice, which you don't want. But I could see if something like that happens. Hopefully it won't come to pass. I'm not predicting it. But the conditions certainly are there that if something bad happened, there would be recriminations. And there are some residents that said people have broken into their homes, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They've broken in, stolen stuff, beaten people up, robbed them, uh, harassed them walking down the street. 
Yeah, this and this is on a daily daily basis. And you had some data. There's some statistics that the number of homeless have gone up significantly. Oh yeah, 68 percent. Oh yeah, huge increases in just the last few years. About 10 years ago, uh, more or less, there were about a thousand homeless people, perhaps, just in Sacramento. And most of those are in the city core area where City Hall is, where the state capital is, in that K Street business district. Today, it's estimated to be just about 10,000, maybe even more wow. than that, you know, in just a few years. So it has been a tide, a rising tide of it. And what's the response from the city? I think the city is working on it, right? Well, what does working on it mean? The city is spending somewhere around $40 million a year on homeless issues. Where's the money going? What are they doing? And here is one of the things I noticed. And I talk about the remodel at the Capitol, talk about the residents, and I talk to the business people. All three of those groups, people will tell you that they get very little response from either the state or the city. They, they just don't get answers. And there were hundreds of what they call 311 uh, calls that they've made, and no one responds to them. Or if they do, they come out and they give a piece of paper to someone that says, don't do this again, or here's a referral to you for a homeless camp or resources that you need to do, but nothing gets changed. And in many cases in the business, in this film, I follow a bookstore owner around. We walk around. And he's not negative. He's got a very positive, can-do attitude. And he's, he says, hey, I'm in charge of policing my own street. If there's people out there that are causing trouble, I want to make sure my customers get to and from my store safely. So he's out there. Part of his job, he says, is to make sure things are safe on his street. The Sacramento Police Department, they're great policemen like they are, and women like they are everywhere. They're 100-some positions short. So they're overworked. I think they've been told, reports are, they've been told by city officials, don't enforce all the laws. Turn, your, uh, turn away from some of the things that are going on. Obviously, there's so much crime that they're not enforcing any drug laws or anything. People are out selling drugs openly on the street. You walk down K Street Mall and you can smell marijuana everywhere and other drugs and they're just selling them openly. And there are hypodermic needles all over the place and no one's picking them up. In one case, the business owner, so here's K Street and it's a nice mall, both sides with stores, Many of them are vacant, sadly, but they're there. And so you, you can walk down this corridor for like six blocks, seven blocks, and they're m almost all the street lights were out, the overhead lights. So he notices it, and he has to call the city and tell the city, hey, you know, the lights are out. Can somebody fix the lights? Why is no one paying attention to that? Now, to the city's credit, he says that they did, once he contacted them, they came down, and apparently there had been a dispute between the city and the regional transit as to who is in charge of the lights, who's responsible. They did work it out and they got the lights back on. But to me, why isn't you know, the mayor or some designee coming into work every day going, okay, somebody give me a list of the problems that we've got, what it's gotta be fixed today. You know, I grew up in Chicago under Mayor Richard J. Daley I, his son was also mayor, but he was mayor of Chicago back in the 60s and 70s. I worked for the Chicago Park District one year. There used to be a big football game there every year at Soldier Field, which is the big city-owned stadium. Wh one day the mayor came down and he looked around and my boss was there, the guy in charge of all of us little, you know, minions. And he pulled that guy aside and he said, Chester, if you don't get all these 
seats repainted in bright new colors in the games like 10 days away. I don't care what it does hap has to happen. I don't care if you're here 24-7. You get it done. And you know what? It got done. But that's the kind of leadership. I don't know if it can be exerted these days. Maybe, I don't know, the employees won't put up with it or whatever. But it seems to me that that kind of hands-on response is what's needed. The same with the state capitol, where there's a huge remodeling project going on. They're tearing things out. They're going to get rid of a very public area that was people used to protest or have presentations about their issues and things. That's going to be replaced. And there was no public input in that decision. It was all done in secret. Uh, the people that worked on the project were required to sign non-disclosure forums so that they wouldn't talk to anybody. Even the press in Sacramento says it's been the most under-the-radar thing that they've ever seen. And Again, maybe the capital needs to be re remodeled. I'm sure there are some things that need to be changed. But why isn't there public input? What is the buzzword all the time? Transparency, openness. Where's the transparency? Why are we keeping people out of the process who know the capital, love the capital, and would actually help to improve the presence of it so that it does bring in tourists from around the state, people from around the state come up to Sacramento to see the capital, which is beautiful and it's got amazing symbolic and historic features to it, and uh, it could be a just a, a wonderful thing. A couple years ago, about, I'm getting old, so a couple years ago to me, is like 10 years. <laughs> 10 years ago or so, I approached some people, state and lobbyists, and I said, why isn't there a welcome center for children in one of these empty buildings right across from the Capitol? Because all the kids in California used to, I'm not sure if they still are, in fourth grade, part of their civics course would come up to Sacramento and they go to the Capitol and tour around. Well, I noticed they're sitting there on the Capitol grounds eating their lunch and there are strange people around, right? There's a, why isn't there a, a facility they could go into, have some tables and chairs, eat their lunch, maybe have some exhibits on the wall? Well, that never went everywhere. There's not even a visitor's bureau in the downtown Sacramento to welcome people. You know, a little kiosk or something, welcome here. So I don't know why those things have happened, but it seems like, um, again, I'm not asking to reinvent the wheel. To me, these things like bread and butter, blocking and tackling type issues for the city. Before we continue, we would like to thank Shen Yun for sponsoring this channel. I lived in China for two years and experienced two different Chinas. One is the China we know now, unfortunately with communism. And the other is ancient Chinese culture with 5,000 years of history, strong values, ethics, and morality that has been lost. Shenyun Performing Arts is reviving this 5,000 years of Chinese traditional culture. It takes you back in time to magical world of ancient China with a unique blend of brilliant dancing, beautiful costumes, and legends coming to life. Go to shenyun.com to find out the schedule and theater information. It's a lifetime experience you don't want to miss. Book your tickets today. Now let's go back to the interview. You mentioned this capital building project. Uh, we've been hearing about it, but there's not a lot of information about it. Can you tell us what, what's happening there? Yeah, so the state capital is being totally remodeled. A big area on the back called the annex was ripped out totally. The legislature is putting in an underground parking lot just for the legislators, not for the public, so that they have easy access to the capital. In the last two years, the whole capital area has been blocked off 
with con massive construction, cranes and things, moving trees. The Capitol has a beautiful park. There are trees from all over the world in there. And this is all the vision of the pioneers of California, the early settlers of California, who wanted this really uh, temple, if you will, to democracy and to the republic. Uh, trees, it's just a beautiful area. Well, they're redoing it all, which again, it may need to be. I'm sure there's, you know, the Capitol's been there since the 1870s, so things need to be fixed and replaced and maybe added or deleted, but they never involved the public and they didn't have any public input, uh, no hearings. It was all done in secret and done by the Senate and Assembly Rules Committee, which never had any public hearings or anything about it. The legislators, most of them don't live there. They live all over the state, like our representatives do in Washington. They come in for four days during the week and then they go back to their districts in LA or San Francisco or wherever. So they don't really have a lot of skin in the game in terms of what the capital looks like, what impact it has on Sacramento. There are state office buildings leading to the Capitol on what's called Capitol Mall, about four blocks, beautiful wide open area. And now they're talking about the state workers not coming back to, the, to work in those buildings and turning them into uh, lower income housing. So what impact is that going to have on the city itself in, in relation to the Capitol? So the Capitol is historic. It has so much symbolism in the statuary, the meaning of the things that they put in there. People need to understand what that is. That is the basis, I think, or a basis, the symbolic basis for all of us understanding our participatory democracy, our form of Republican government. They had a beautiful statue of Christopher Columbus, Queen Isabella, and a page. It was a statuary group, huge, the three figures together. Columbus is kneeling at Queen Isabella's in front of her. He's, you know, she is granting the money for him to go to the New World. Well, they tore that out right after the George Floyd protests. Apparently, it was never really explained. Well, he was a colonizer and he, was, he killed the Indians, so you know, we're going to banish the statue. It's sitting in a state warehouse somewhere, and it's just gone. There's just a big vacant uh, hole where it used to be, vacant space in, in the Capitol Rotunda. So things like that that they keep doing. There's a, a statue of Father Junipero Serra, uh, the founder of the California missions back in the 1700s, about the time of, the, of our uh, Declaration of Independence, about the same time. Spain, of course, owned California at the time, had California. And uh, so some people say he was a colonizer, that he abused the Indians. That is open to interpretation and research, but those are the allegations. Okay, fine, let's talk about that. Maybe there are things that need to be revised. Certainly, I'm never against that. Let's look openly and honestly at history. But what happened was his statue was vandalized and destroyed. There was then a bill that went in because by law, there was supposed to be a statue of Father Sarah in the Capitol grounds, outside the Capitol in this beautiful garden yard that we have by law. That was rescinded and the governor signed a new bill which put a monument to the Native Americans there, which is fine. I don't know why Father Sarah's statue had to come out to put that one in. But again, all of the symbolic things are being altered and I think it's tragic, I really do. And what do this symbolism mean? Can you explain some of this for our audience to understand what, what do these statues mean? There's meanings behind well, all of them, Well, right? for Sarah, it was the civilization of the state of California. Probably people don't like that word these days. Well, 
but you know there were just Native Americans here, not just, but the Native Americans were here. And Sarah established all those missions up all the way from Southern California to San Francisco. So uh, he's a saint in the Catholic Church. There's 20 million Catholics in California. So it was an important symbol to them. Columbus, of course, discovered America and a gold miner contributed the money and commissioned the statue back in the 1870s and 80s to be in here. And it was to be the symbolic end of, the, of Columbus's exploration, which he, yes, he didn't come to California, but he did start the process that led to California being a state on the western edge of the United States. So it was symbolic about the whole Columbus saga journey, the settlement of America. Critics, and they can say what they want about Columbus. Again, that's a, a uh, conflicted record. Um, I've read books where say he was never a colonizer. He was an adventurer, an explorer. But whatever the case would be, but let's have a hearing or let's have discussions and input. Let's just not rip it out. Other pioneers of Sacramento, John Sutter, the man who built Sutter's Fort, which had been called one of the most important buildings in the history of Western civilization, comparable to the Acropolis and the Pantheon in Italy and Greece. His statue was removed, and the history of John Sutter is being rewritten. I have my views on it. Other people would have their views, but these things are just being done, and we're losing these important symbols of our pioneer past. Based on what you have explored, because you've been do doing a lot of movies and you've been looking at the history of California, can you explain to us more about the culture of California and, and this history that you have seen? California is such a huge state and such an important state. It always has a very varied culture. We're the size of all of New England, I think. You know, bigger than all of New England, B bigger than most of the East Coast, more people, bigger geographic area. So you have many, many influences, and you had many immigrants here from all over the world. Take agriculture, for example. Uh, we are the dominant agriculture state in the country and have been since probably the 1880s, 1890s, that long. Why is that? Well, it's our climate. It's our, our uh, weather. It's a fact that we had people that were hardworking and ingenious who devised a system of canals and waterworks that took the snow melt from the Sierra Nevada and distributed it to the agricultural region so that we could grow these diverse fruits and crops. Very important. And uh, we have 10 different soil types in the state. There's no other region in the world. We have a pure Mediterranean climate, very rare. So these are things that need to be treasured, need to be understood. And now what do we hear? We hear farmers are greedy. They're hoarding all the water. They're using too much water. What is more important than agriculture in your mind? And it's important to understand it, what it means to the state the legacy of the state, and hopefully the future of the state. It was Californians in Sacramento called the Big Four, led by Leland Stanford, after whom Stanford University is named. Leland Stanford had been a shopkeeper in Sacramento, and he and three other shopkeepers got together, and you know, they said, we need to have a railroad that links California to the rest of the country. Now, before the railroad was put in, we were isolated. We weren't growing. It was a very difficult thing. People couldn't go home to visit their relatives. You imagine you're living here and you're never gonna, they used to say goodbye, they would never see their family again. So yeah, so these guys, they raised the money themselves to begin it. It's totally on spec, if you will. Now, was it a good investment? It turned out really good because it raised them to be some of the richest people in the world. 
but through history they've been called the robber barons and hated, you know. So again, here's what Sacramentans did to connect California to the world, not just the East Coast, the world. The idea was that the goods would come from the East and, and then products back to the East and then go from here and then on to Asia from, from the ports in San Francisco and the Bay So what a vision. And they did it just within like 20 years of settling the state. So you have people that did those type of things. Those need to be remembered. Those need to be honored, uh, I believe. And are there other narratives? Yes. So should those be included? Yes, but not eliminated. So what you're mentioning that there, there were some innovators in the state early on that actually kind of essentially it seems like people just did stuff themselves and didn't wait for the government to do something for them, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the government was important in settling California, there's no doubt, and land grants were important, things of that nature, but it was the uh, uh, genius and the character of the people that overcame things that no one thought they could overcome. Prior to California, agriculture experts, for example, believed that you couldn't have mining. Of course, we had the gold rush, which was probably one of the largest mining operations in the world, and agriculture side by side. They didn't think that was compatible. It had not been compatible anywhere in the world until it happened in California. What was the reason uh, that mining, you couldn't have mining and agriculture? Well, I think it was a belief uh, of people at the end of that era because they looked at world history. They saw where the Roman mines, for example, were far from Rome. They were up north of Italy and they actually, when they quarried marble, they went north of Florence to get the marble. So in Greece, the same thing. So the mining had always been traditionally separated from agriculture. It makes sense, I mean, if you think about it. So yeah, it was tremendous innovation uh, by people to do it and to make the desert bloom, to make the Central Valley bloom with all these wonderful uh, crops that we have and raising families and people and and that continued, uh, and then California was so important to the nation's defense. You know, when they put the railroad in, uh, Abraham Lincoln signed the legislation that authorized that. It was during the Civil War, the building of it. And one of the stipulations was that they had to carry uh, troops and materiel for the military for free. That was part of the deal because the, the West Coast needed to be defended, and there was no other quick way to get material and men to the West Coast other than the railroad. So that was part of the deal. That continued to World War II and beyond when we had the great aerospace industries out here, Lockheed Martin, Boeing from Seattle. But all of these great aerospace companies were here in California. They developed the, aer the uh, aircraft industry here. Again, the weather was great. You could fly a plane all year round, take them out and test them. But again, tremendous achievement and um, it should not be lost or diminished. And then we had the tech boom, right? Then the tech boom, yeah, which is <laughs> a whole nother story, right? That would be my next film, mate. But yes, the tech boom was here. You know, why was there, a mag was there some magic in uh, California's garages? You look at companies like Hewlett Packard started in the garage. Many of the high tech companies did. And again, it was just people getting together going, hey, let's make this better. Let's do this. Let's figure a way to get this done. The educational system also helped tremendously. University of California, Berkeley, Stanford University, other universities were a very key, important part of that. And Stanford was endowed by Leland Stanford, the founder of the 
Central Pacific Railroad, he paid for it all. Also, it was one of the first, if not the first university to admit women on an equal basis with men at Stanford. So when you hear about Leland Stanford, you don't hear these types of things. You hear that he was a robber baron and he exploited the Chinese workers and many, many negative things. You hardly ever hear the positive things. It's very hard to actually record the moments because even in the present time, we may not even know what's really true and not. And then how do you go back and analyze the history of something 100, 200 years ago? Now we're kind of applying certain standards where we, we may not even know what was happening back in the day, right? Well, here's an interesting example of that. First of all, I wouldn't agree that it's hard. I think what you have to do is, as much as you can, read the original source documents. And there's lots of them. Some have been lost, of course. 1906 earthquake really dealt a blow to many, many records and archives. But here's what happens in history. There was a myth. I made the film about the Transcontinental Railroad building of it. So they had to build it from Sacramento up 7,000 feet over the Sierra Nevada. People told them they were crazy. You, just, you cannot do this. It's not technically feasible. And nobody had done it. There, there were, had been no other transcontinental railroad in, in the world up until that one. So as I said, they raised the money and they built it. There was a legend. And the legend said that one place called Cape Horn, which was a big high promontory, and they had to put the uh, rail around this promontory, this big, huge kind of mountain. And the legend was that the Chinese workers were hung off the side of the cliffs in wicker baskets and had to chisel away at the side to put the railroad in. Now, I met the great-grandson of the man who engineered the railroad. He thoroughly documented what really happened. And what really happened was, first of all, it wasn't a straight drop-off. You couldn't have hung off the side of that if you wanted to. Right? There was no sway there. It, it wasn't a straight, it was a hill. So the Chinese workers did dig it, dig it, but there were no, nobody hanging off ropes anywhere. Well, that story started because a travel brochure writer put it in about 20 years later that, oh, stop here and you can uh, imagine Chinese hanging off the side in these baskets. You know, in, they were in painted wicker baskets, embellished after and then that got passed on, and that got embellished, till finally you had them hanging down the sheer side of a cliff. But again, if you go back and you read, there's no uh, mentions of any Chinese hanging off of cliffs there, uh, and no mention of them being exploited to that degree. So if you look at it, and you can, but again, there's, because you can't write the same book that somebody before you wrote, right? You have to change things. You have to make it more interesting. More right? interesting. So that's more what More dramatic, happened. more yeah. interesting. And from what you're saying, it seems like the culture of this state is making impossible possible, right? Is that, is that what it's That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but, uh, but that is a very good way. And um, even the gold rush, when people came out uh, against all odds and they either walked 1,500 miles, think about that, and it was men and some women, by the way, or came around the Cape of South America that way, extremely arduous. You had to have fire in your belly to do that. You know, you weren't, you weren't somebody that was going to be dissuaded at mile 50 to tell you, this is hard. You know, you're going to go the whole way. And I think those people set the tone for the state in a lot of ways. Why are so many people leaving California? It wasn't long ago, people from everywhere wanted to move to the Golden State to enjoy a better life. Sadly, the standard of living has been dropping in the past decade. 
Are you like me and wonder why this is happening? I'm Siamai Karami, host of California Insider. In our film, Leaving California, The Untold Story, I take you an intimate journey of love, loss, tragedy, and hope as residents face the prospect of leaving their beloved state. Everyday people like you tell their stories about why they have to move out of the state even though they don't want to. Experts and policymakers also give insights about what's happening behind the scenes. Together, we get to the root cause of this exodus. Go to leavingcalifornia.com to view the first 15 minutes of the film for free. By watching Leaving California, you can be part of the solution. Again, go to livingcalifornia.com. And now, Bill, with, with the situation we're facing, so it seems like we're kind of going back and we're trying to change the history. We're trying to change. Are we changing our culture? Are we losing this culture that, that you have been studying? Well, that's a tough one. Culture is always a hard one. Um, and I think it ebbs and flows. It goes up and down. Nothing is ever permanent in that regard. Um, I was talking to my Uber driver on the way down here, and he said, you know, people will try to change history, but people always find out the truth. And I think the truth always will come out. So you have, and this isn't the first time we've had so-called revisionist history. I went to school in the 60s, and the first wave, or it might have even been the second, the first wave of revisionist history historians were actually in the 30s, the 1930s. They're the ones who kind of you know, rewrote the narrative of America from being maybe an over-exuberant na narrative, an over-glorified narrative, but they're the ones who took it down a couple of, of pegs and, and pointed out that there had been uh, depredations done to Native Americans. They pointed out slavery and the horrors of that, which should have been done. But then in the 60s, during the revolutions of the 60s, if you will, the anti-Vietnam protesters, there was a whole nother wave of revisionist history that came through. Well then between then and now it kind of, you know, the story kind of got counterbalanced a little bit. So it isn't the first time that it's happened and there will continue to be this back and forth debate as there should be about our history, about what it means, and it needs to be inclusive. It needs to include uh, the black experience. It needs to include the Native American experience. But it doesn't need to be reinvented. And that's where I think um, sometimes there's problems. A number of schools were renamed in Sacramento. Kit Carson was an explorer, legendary. I mean, there's been films and books about Kit Carson forever. Well, they took his name off of a school. They took John Sutter's name off of a school. And again, they consigned all these horrible things to them. And that is what we call presentism. We are looking at the actions of these people that were done 100, 150 years ago, completely legal at the time, completely ethical at the time. No one complained, really, about, no, there wasn't anybody else there saying, you know, Kit Carson, you know, you shouldn't be going this way. You shouldn't be opening up these new lands. That was, it was with the consent and approval of the government. And um, were things done that we wouldn't do today? Certainly not but it's not the reality of what they had. They didn't get in their air-conditioned car and drive from Omaha to Nebraska to Sacramento, California in two and a half days, okay? It was just a completely different deal. Now, you have been studying the history of California and you know a lot about it and you're seeing what's happening in the capital and you're seeing the homelessness and we've, we've been spending a lot of resources on trying to solve this 
What are your thoughts on all of this? How does this make you feel? Well, it makes me feel uh, very bad, both for the homeless who are being uh, seemingly shunted around here to there. I mean, I've got the guy in the film. He says, I clean up the problem on my block, and there's just another problem on another block. And that's what seems to be happening. So I don't know why I'm not an expert. I'm not a sociologist or an addiction uh, expert. But it seems to me that whatever we're doing, it ain't working. We're spending untold amounts, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Even the government, Gavin Newsom, has been frustrated by it, right? And now they're coming out with another bond issue next year uh, about it. And they're going to raise multiple million dollars more. Billions? Or Bi millions or billions. I don't know. It's a, it's a yeah. big number. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. As Everett Dirksen said, once you're talking about billions, you're talking about real money, right? But they have so much money that they're spending, and it doesn't seem to be the answer. So. Personally, I think, and I'm not an expert, but in my own life, I think we need to have two parents in the family. We need to have kids who can count, grow up in that environment. It seems to me very important. And um, I think a whole host of our ills come from the fact that with the nuclear family, and for a number of reasons, since nobody's diabolical pro uh, plan, I don't think, but we need to reinstitute some of those traditional methods that we had uh, of, of raising kids and getting our, our society back focused on what really matters, not just the almighty dollar. Because again, where's the evidence and the proof that spending millions and millions of dollars is working? Where's the evidence that giving needles to addicts is working? Um, I don't see it. And if I'm wrong, I'd be the first one to go and report it. Do you have any recommendations for state leaders and <laughs> Californians? I guess the biggest one for state leaders would be listen to your constituents. Listen to them. Heed what they're saying. Don't go off on your grand idea about something and do it. I think we saw that during the COVID school closures where the state ordered schools uh, closed and just took you know, all of these actions without really involving parents in the decisions. And I think time after time we see that and we see, you know, government, rightly or wrongly sometimes, has big visions about what it wants to do. Let's get back again to the basics. Let's get back to education. You know, the schools that took out the names of the pioneers that I talked about, those schools have a 32% of their students are reading at grade level. What are we focused on? Why are we worried about the name of the school? And why do we have committees that meet with us and come up with these names? Shouldn't we be focused on getting the kids learning to uh, read and write? And then their ma math skills are equally or are actually worse at these schools. So what's important? It's not that hard to figure out. And do you have any recommendations for people that, that might have been seeing what's happening or, or they might not be, be they're too busy or whatever they're doing. Do you have any recommendations for them? Yes, and I know, as you said accurately, they are, you know, that you go to work, you come home, the kids got to get to soccer practice or whatever, or music, and you're running around the whole time, and then you flop into bed, and you pay the bills, and maybe you watch a TV show or something, and then you flop into bed at midnight, and you start the whole thing again. But I would say agitate, agitate, agitate. That's what it takes. Don't give up. And we're seeing that in Sacramento. I mean, this story came from a group of people in Sacramento who were agitating because they're so 
upset with the homeless situation that they're dealing with, but they're not giving up, they're fighting. And that's what you hear about all these folks that are leaving California, and you can understand why when you see these things going on. People get very disillusioned, but my wife and I talked about this, and we said, you know, we're not leaving. We're gonna stay and fight it, because this is a great state. No state is as beautiful, no state is as magical, and we damn near can't, sure can't lose it. So where can people f uh, find your documentary? Well, I haven't got a, an airing scheduled yet, um, but I'll be opening up and talking to some different folks about that. My films usually air on PBS, so that's always one place. But if they go to buildgeorge1.com, I will post the information there about where they can find out what the next steps for this film are. And we might carry it on this channel, on our network. That would be wonderful. I mean, you guys have such a, a huge reach. You're building all the time. Everybody that I talk to knows about you. And, um, and carry on. Bill George, independent journalist. It was great to have you on California Insider. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. If you haven't checked out CaliforniaInsider.com, we highly recommend you do that now because we're gonna have a lot of news and videos there. And on top of what we have there right now, we're building a really big platform to cover what's happening in California. So you can be informed. We're gonna have more shows, more videos from all aspects of life in California. Go to CaliforniaInsider.com and we'll see you there.